Yeah, it's, it's annoying because I was supposed to be going to the Arsenal Wolves game on the 28th of December oh. with a really good, really good mate of mine from uni who I, I, I haven't seen much of in recent years because uh, Arsenal Wolves games all seem to be on awkward days. Um, but we were all set for the 28th and then COVID yeah. cooled off and uh, yeah, another game missed. So he's got my he's got my tickets for tonight. <laughs> oh, that's a shame. I'll leave that in actually because that. Obviously, um, it was Gunnosaurus who was most affected, tongue-in-cheek, by, by the yeah. pandemic. This was ludicrous. Yeah. The whole Meza Ozil thing, Arsenal were then just laughing stock. No qualification for Europe this season. Pepe a waste of money. Aubameyang upset. Xhaka getting sent off every other minute. Um, but yeah. now, as, uh, and the match is going to kick off shortly, so we'll keep half an eye on what's going on then. Uh, yeah. So we are recording, oddly, during an Arsenal game where I'm talking to John Sperling, who is best associated with Arsenal, but has written about some other teams in Get It On, how the 70s rocked football, which is out on Bite Back as this goes out. I haven't actually yet seen a copy of the book. You know, there's nothing, that is, as, as an author, is this wonderful feeling when that box arrives and you get your author copies. And every day I sort of run home, I skip home, well, I, in my Vauxhall Corsa, <laughs> waiting for them to arrive. And they haven't yet, so I've not seen them, but it's, they are, it is on the shelves Good. and available on Amazon a week today. Yeah. yeah, that's what I'm looking forward to with my book that we're not here to talk about that's out in two months' time, because I've just... Two months is it, yeah. Uh, May the 2nd, just after the Youth Cup final. Um, oh, brilliant, yeah. Which Arsenal will not be in. No, um, the, the great thing about writing a book or just just having your name on it it's something that is durable it will last obviously if it falls in the bath you'll ruin it but you've you've had this experience several times i just wanted to touch on death or glory uh because i wanted to talk about the world cups because i asked you because your first world cup would have been 78 yes it the one england the one weren't I, in. first i can remember yeah england yeah. weren't in it no mine was 98 so i would ah. have been 10 years old. I don't remember. All I remember about 94 is Footix was the mascot and I had one of those kits with a notepad and a pencil and a rubber. It was like a souvenir yeah. kit. But yes. Do you remember, do you remember Diana Ross's um, nope. penalty kit? Only afterwards. No. Only, right, and okay. indeed, that was overshadowed by OJ Simpson. The OJ Simpson car chase was the opening day of the opening ceremony of that was world. Was that Cup. right? I didn't remember that. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. I remember that. I remember the uh, yeah. I remember the, the searing heat as well as those Republic of Ireland players got got frazzled under, in the in the sun against Italy. I remember that as well. Oof. Yeah, well, yeah. The less said about Qatar, the better. I don't think I'm going to watch it. Are you having having you having written this book, Death or Glory: The Dark History of the World Cup? Mm-hmm. You're not watching this tournament, right? I probably will. I shouldn't, but I probably will because it's it's, it's the World Cup, isn't it? But it's too long and bloated, and there's only about four good games. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's 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 the thing with bloated tournaments. I mean, you refer to the '78 World Cup when it was it's much it's much kind of shrunken down. It gets as it, I suppose it cuts the chase, but then you know, it's, I guess it's about I guess it's about the global game, isn't it? Not the not that. Not, not that um, the awarding of the World Cup to Qatar is anything about the global game. It's about something else, but it's not about that. I'm just going off top-level football with apologies to the game that's just kicked off at the <laughs> library. And by the way, at the beginning of this podcast and at the end, I always have just like the library, just like the library. I don't know which football fans are singing it, but it's aimed at the Arsenal fans. Now, having written a book about Hybrid and having been to the Emirates for 15 years... 
Yeah. Has it got quieter, louder, or stayed the same volume-wise? Um, I don't have that much of a problem with the Emirates personally. Um, I, I loved Highbury, and I wrote a book on it um, and everything else. But what I find is if the, if the team is doing better, the atmosphere picks up. And I think that particularly this season, um, the atmosphere's got a lot a lot better. I think fans are genuinely pleased to see football, you know, live football again. And I think that, as we said earlier, with all these wonderful young players like Saka and Smith Rowe coming through, I think there's there's you know there's a lot to be cheerful at. But I'm not sure the Emirates is 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 much quieter than a lot of stadiums these days. I mean, I've been to Ellen Road, I've been to Goodison, and I'd say yeah, they're 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 noisier uh, from game to game. But I don't know. I mean, I've been to. Man United Arsenal and the home fans were silent for much of the game when they were winning. I've been to, you know, I've been to um, Manchester City and the away Arsenal fans outsung them. I I think it's an issue of modern football. I'm not sure that Arsenal are any worse than anybody else, to be honest with you. It's it's not as raucous, perhaps, as as it was football generally, because the, the, you know, the clientele has changed. Which is why I, w- I always recommend St Auburn City. It's difficult for me to get to without a car because they've stopped the trains and it will be an hour's bus yeah. there and back. But yeah. Ian Allenson is doing wonderful yeah. things there. Yeah, no, he is. I actually went to uh, watch, went to watch St Albans a couple of years ago. So I'm, I'm from Hertfordshire originally. I'm from Hoddesdon. Hoddesdon, right? Yeah. Yes. So I'm a Hertfordshire boy. So yeah, I've, I've seen I've seen St Albans play a few times actually, but not not recently. I haven't. Didn't see my local team Hoddesdon Town play, and they were the they were the first ever FA Vars winners in seventy yes. in in seventy five. So yeah, that's that's it. And seventy five, which you didn't remember, but seventy eight. One of the questions I asked you uh, yeah. was that England didn't qualify for seventy eight. How much did English kids support a home nations team at the World Cup? Did you adopt Scotland that World Cup? I remember being very very interested in them i do actually remember at my my school in uh Sheridan's junior school in in hoddesdon i do remember <laughs> there being a gang of boys going around singing we're on the march with ali's army now i don't think they i don't think they were scottish you didn't have many scots down in hertfordshire sitting well probably not now but certainly not in the in the 70s but i think that there was, I think, there was a, a, a feeling of goodwill towards the Scots from most, from many fans. Um, but I personally was more interested in the Dutch. Even as an eight-year-old, I got the, I got the feeling there was uh, a frisson around the Dutch. Uh, just the mere mention of their names, and I remember my teacher at that time talking about not Cruyff because Cruyff didn't play in '78, but he was more interested in Harry Hahn and, and Rude Kroll. Um, so I th- I think there was probably more interest in Holland than there was in Scotland. And 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 bear in mind, as an eight year old, I probably didn't have you know a full uh, understanding of what of what was going on. But I think it was more Holland than Scotland. Well, they would have been imagine... great. Colour TV would have been very nice to those shirts. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's right. The the orange. They just they just shine out, don't they? They shine out. And I must, I must recommend uh, Gary Thacker's book, Beautiful Bridesmaids Dressed in Orange, all about Ajax. I'll be talking to Gary about his book about Chelsea, in which I'll probably just ask him about Roman Abramovich. But now is not the time to mention <laughs> the war. Who knows what will happen in the week right. between when this that, is discussed and when this goes a, out. That is a topical question. Who knows what will happen to Roman Abramovich? Because yeah. he's already... I don't think he... He was at the Club World Championship final because it was in Abu Dhabi. 
I think. Uh, but he's not allowed, he can't watch at Stamford Bridge. He's kind of deputed everything to Granovskaya. And Chelsea are, it's difficult because I've written a book about how great their modern youth system is. But they are a very difficult club to like. Uh, whereas Arsenal, I find a lot to like in this starting lineup. Ramsdale, who's just been in one of the adverts of the year. Uh, Cedric is a nice yes. bloke. Tierney's a nice bloke. Yes. White and Gabriel and Party and Saka yeah. and Odegaard, who was the next Ronaldo. Martinelli, who seems to be flattering to deceive. Yeah, yeah. He needs. He certainly needs to impose himself more. I mean, he's had he's had bad injuries, um, and he you know he got himself stupidly sent off with two rapid yellows the other week. Yes, in the yeah, same no, he, he does. Yeah. He, he does need to impose himself more. But that, but you see, the thing is, you say you talk about Arsenal being likable, but that's that's has been part of the problem. But I think Graham Souness once described Arsenal as as an ideal collection of son-in-laws. <laughs> Good. They're such, they're such a nice team. And we want a bit more of the a bit more a bit more evilness in them. But even even with their, their glut of red cards, they're still not evil. They're just being silly. Yeah. Just, maybe know, that's it, what Zaka's there for. You say, don't complain, don't complain about us. This guy gets sent off every time he plays. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. But they're silly red cards. They're not exactly vicious red cards. I don't think there are that you can. There, there are there are any vicious red cards in the modern game, are there? The, the, the game has changed. It's not like the days of Chopper Harris and Norman Hunter. Well, you know, it's, it's Hunter, different. Hunter is the right one to mention, uh, and I'll get there via Hunter to Paul Trevelyan. What a great chapter and an addition to your book, Paul Trevelyan is. Yeah. Football's yeah. Gandalf. The pioneer of the modern game, question mark? We think so. Yeah. yeah. No, Paul Trevelyan is an amazing character. I mean, you know, like, like many of the people I've interviewed for the book, I just rang him up uh, or emailed him and said, will you talk to me? And, and he just, yeah. And, you know, what he did was amazing. So Paul Trevelyan was already a very well-respected cartoonist in the, in the, in the 60s. Um, and he went to work in America. What he discovered quite quickly was that American sport was all about a great day out and he realized they handed out you know free biros free free caps balloons you know the the lot you know families came for tailgate parties in the in the car parks and that kind of thing um and you know before the game there was a spectacle there were there were there were you know there were there were jugglers there were there were fire eaters it was it was a it was a spectacle and he was a Tottenham fan, and he said it was as far removed from English football as, as anything he'd ever seen. So he got back to England, and he approached, first of all, Bill Nicholson at Tottenham. And uh, he said, oh, I've got some ideas about how to kind of, you know, zhuzh Tottenham up a little bit. And Bill Nicholson said, no, 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 no. We're not, we're not, we're not Tiller girls, Paul. But what he did, he was, he was great mates with Don Revy. Uh, manager of the all-conquering Leeds United, and he put him in touch with Don Revy. And Don Revy welcomed Paul Trevelyan with, with open arms. So Trevelyan was, at Don Revy's behest, met with the Leeds team. And initially, they were very, very anti. I mean, as, as you know, I've written a whole chapter on it called, called, called The Beaver, because that, that became his nickname. And Jack Charlton, you know, stand up and said, why don't you F off back to London? You know, Trevelyan, you know, he looked at Don Revy and Don Revy looked at Trevelyan and Trevelyan kept selling his ideas. So... Eventually, he convinced the Leeds team to become super Leeds. So he convinced them to have sock tags, literally tags, you know, at the top of the socks, which at the end of the game, the players would hand to the the kids in the crowd. 
target balls, you know, like, like pool balls, which the players would come out and kick into the crowd. And he realised they would become things that, you know, boys would want to swap at school and they'd flock to the games because they want to want to collect these things. They had their names on the back of tracksuits. And he also set up this kind of um, warm-up routine uh, before the matches, which, you know, Les Cocker, the, uh, mm-hmm. the, the trainer at Leeds, yeah, kind of choreographed. You know, it was it was remarkable. And in his in his brilliant book, The Glory Game, Hunter Davis wrote it was something like out of the Nuremberg Rally with the crowds kind of in raptures at this at this kind of thing. And and this is at the you know, the kind of the behest of, of, of Paul Trevillian, who also, by the way, claims to be the first person to chant Ole and at a you know, when, when the Leeds team famously played keepball against Southampton mm-hmm. in in the seventies because his mother was Spanish. So yeah, so Trevilian kind of t- turned them into 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 super leads. You know, the, the very the, the, his uh, the the FA Cup um, Leeds FA Cup record of um, uh, in '72, marching on together, which is still sung by Leeds fans today. That was because Trevilian went to the the guy who produced Tom Jones's records, and, and he did it for Leeds. Revy wanted a marching song, so I think that much of what Trevilian put into place with with Leeds. We now take for granted in, in in the modern game. He was about the spectacle, the the kind of extravaganza, the fiesta, and actually doing things for the fans, which really no other club did in in the seventies. He was he was decades ahead of his time. Was was Paul? Um, and I know he can't he, he can't wait to see the you know the, the book when it's finished because he, he thinks I'm I'm not sending him a copy yet, but because I haven't got my own copy yet. Yeah. <laughs> keep selling him. But uh, no, Trevilian is an amazing character. And as you say, you know, he, he does look like Gandalf, uh, the wizard. And he, what he did was was remarkable. He actually in the eighties, I don't know if you remember this. He was also the panda of peace. So he he w- would go to games dressed as a giant panda and try to convince you know supporters not to go on the rampage at matches. But that's the story for, for the next book. God no, his his memoir is going to be off the chart. I've just read Clive Tilsley and Mark Clattenburg. I mean, they're all they're okay. Clive Tilsley yeah. need at least three editors. But those books are in the Football Library, along with this one, Get It On, How the 70s Rocked Football, available March the 1st on Bite... Sorry, March the 3rd, isn't it? March the March 3rd. March the 3rd, that's it, yeah. March the 3rd yeah. on Bite Back. And if you go to the Mixcloud page uh, that is linked at the Fussy Library Twitter feed, you can hear Football Records and Club Classics. Club Classics, Volumes 1 and 2, I think Marching On Together is there. And I did note yeah. that it's Mason and Reed who are the writers of that song. 10CC also yeah, feature in this programme in another guise. Uh, records <laughs> do do make your book. You talk about music. Do you have a favourite football record? Well, I, I mean, I've got two. One is Arsenal-related. It won't, won't surprise you. Um, the other one is Back Home. So Back Home was the first football record to go to number one. The 1970 um, England World Cup squad uh, recorded recorded that. And, you know, again, the, st- the story behind it is <clears throat> probably worth telling, I think, in that, you know, Bramsey was kind of initially very, very anti, um, but he got got talked into it by his, his World Cup winners that it, that it might be a bit of fun. And it eventually sold 100,000 copies a week. And I think it's, I think it's because the message is, 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 is quite simple it's and homes, song. fun. Bum, 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 bum. It's like a bum, 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 bum. It's a military song. You could have heard it in 1942. That's what I like about it. And it will feature in club classics. 
And what's your yeah, Arsenal one? Good old Arsenal, which was which was actually um, put together by Jimmy Hill, oddly, because there was a competition in the TV Times to to put together a, 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 a cup final song for Arsenal, and they didn't really like any of the entries. So Jimmy Hill ended up writing it in, writing it himself. But there, again, it's just kind of simple simple messages. You know, the get it get it back home is all about the folks back home because England will thousands of miles away in Mexico and good old Arsenal is, is again they're old fashioned kind of foot stomping numbers aren't they very easy to remember very easy to sing along to well that was the era it was the era of the glam stomp and Bay City Rollers and there was a picture I saw yesterday of Davil and Noddy Holder and I said well I can think of 50 reasons that they're together because Slade had number ones 50 years ago next year is 50 years since Merry Christmas Everybody, which is yeah. the big money spinner. And it's also yeah. 50 years next year. Here's a segue. Jan Tomaszewski, The Clown. You, the clown. not just one chapter, but there are two about the disruptor, Brian Clough. That's so many books on him. Uh, it must have just been fun reading about him. Yeah, it was fun talking to the players who, who, who played under him. They, they kind of rem- remember him with a, a mixture of affection and still a degree of a degree of fear with his sledgehammer sledgehammer put downs. Um, you know, I, I mean, I I make I, I say it in in the book, and I did, I did wonder about whether this was hyperbole and I was exaggerating, but I do think that Brian Clough wasn't only the the major figure in football. I think he was the major figure in the seventies. Full stop. I don't think there's a pop star or politician who had a higher profile than Clough because, you know, he. He was the first football manager to make an assault, if you like, on, on the sport through various media platforms. So he was a pundit on, on ITV. He was on the ball, the ITV um, lunchtime football show. He had a column in the papers. He was on chat shows like Parkinson and Frost. He was everywhere. I mean, you know, the, the players you, I interviewed, like John McGovern and you know, Roy McFarland and, and whatever, they all they all impersonate his voice now. <laughs> John McGovern does a, a brilliant impersonation of Clough, far better than far better than Mike Yarwood ever did, who is the big impersonator yeah. today. But yeah, I do think that he was the archetypal seventies figure full stop, which which sounds ridiculous. You think he's only a football manager, but he got what it meant to make attention grabbing comments and he knew exactly how to play the media so Clough is Clough is a remarkable figure and what I enjoyed was I was able to get I think some different slants on Clough so as as I've said in the book you know my interviews go back 25 years ago so I was able to speak to the the baseball ground groundsman where Derby used to play and the pitch at, in at Derby was notoriously awful in the 70s it would churn up by October and, and then not have a you know, a blade of grass on it. But but Clough used to get him to flood the pitch, not because he wanted to bring the level down, but because he thought his players could perform better on an awful pitch because they were so skillful. And he knew that other teams would, would struggle. You know, occasionally get help from the, the fire brigade the night before to flood the baseball ground. So those sort of insights, I think, are hope are new. Because like you say, you know, there's been so much written about Clough. But I, I like to think I've got some different insights on him, on him here. I did ask you, if you're having a dinner party, who you'd invite? You're allowed a player, a manager, a pundit and a ref. Player, I would have George Best. I love my time with, with George Best. I interviewed him, interviewed him twice. And um, 
I was fortunate in the sense that I interviewed him in 2004, and it was a year after he'd had his liver transplant. Right. So he was actually quite well. You know, I don't think he was ever particularly well later in his life, but he was he was sober, and he'd lost that kind of puff around his face, and he looked um, he looked a, a little bit more like the handsome athlete who blazed a trail in football. And I found him amazing company. I I, I think that. I found out later, and I always suspected it, that he was, he was invited to join Mensa. He was highly intelligent. He used to do these ridiculously difficult Sudoku puzzles um, and crossword puzzles. And I found him to be, you know, very matter-of-fact about what, he, what his impact was on the game. He was, he was the first true football superstar with all the media and the, the, the financial trappings. So I would have, at a dinner party, a sober George Best. Mm-hmm. Definitely. He would be fantastic company. Referee-wise, unquestionably, Gordon Hill. Who I know nothing about other than his memoir is called The Remarkable Referee. For a young person who knows perhaps Mike Dean, is Gordon Hill (laughs) Mike Dean cubed? Why remarkable? (laughs) I mean, the, uh, I mean, the idea of a, re- a rebellious referee, it's like, a, it's a paradox, isn't it? It shouldn't, it shouldn't happen. But Gordon, Gordon Hill had a kind of like, um, he had a, he had a moustache that made him look like he should be on the front cover of Sergeant Pepper. Um, and ironically, he based his look where he unzipped his, his black shirt uh, in, the, in the days when refs wore, wore black because he saw George Harrison on a, on a chat show in America and he thought he'd model himself on that. So it was like a, a kind of a kind of like a rock star ref. But he, he he forged his reputation because he would swear back at players. He was very much let the game flow. And he'd swear back at, ref, at, at, at the players. So Tommy Smith very famously went up to him and said, am I allowed to swear on this, by the yeah, way? Yeah, you can. All right. So he, he went up to Gordon Hill and he goes, you know, in his Scouse accent, which you can't do, that's a shit decision, Gordon. And Gordon Hill turned around to Tommy Smith, one of the toughest guy in 70s football. He goes, yeah, but was it as shit as your shot that ended up in the cop 10 minutes ago, Tommy? And Smith you know, just, just ran off laughing. George Best loved Gordon Hill. He says it in his book that he wrote with Michael Parkinson that he's the only ref he had any respect for because... You know, as you said, if you're having a bad game, Gordon Hill would, would take the piss out of you. Now, that didn't always go down with other refer- well with other referees. And um, they thought that he was a bit over-familiar with the players. And, you know, Bobby Charlton famously didn't like the fact that Gordon Hill drank in the, the players' lounge. But, you know, but Gordon Hill reckoned he, he was part of the show. Why not? He was, he was a referee. So, so he, he kind of makes referees, I think, um, an essential part of the action. Whereas before they were literally just, you know, the men in black. They were almost ghosts who, and no one knew, no, no one knew their name. I uh, went to school, uh, primary school in Harrow, and there would be prep schools music afternoons. And I remember not being starstruck, but just standing a yard away from David Ellery Brackett's Harrow, and thinking, yeah. oh. And I read his book, and I've since read Mark Clattenburg's book. Ellery does not come off very well. I have a whole stack of books by referees, Winter and Pole and Webb. None of them are brilliant, but how amazing that a referee, and Mike Deans is going to be really good. Deans will be the best one in at least 50 years. Um, (laughs) Since the year, because you had Hill and Burtonshaw who put out books, which must mean there was a demand for books. Kalina's book is amazing. 
Yeah, Reflet. 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 The most, the most niche literary genre of the 70s. But they, they, they were, I mean, another one is by, by Pat Partridge. I think it's called Oi Ref. And I, I quote that where, you know, he's, he's, a, he's refereeing an Everton match on Boxing Day. And he makes a decision that the home fans don't like. And one Everton fan shouts, oh, get back to your fucking pear tree, Partridge. <laughs> so <laughs> so they're, they're, often, they're often like unintentionally hilarious. Yeah. But, 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 I, but it, is, it is amazing. Referees became, became part of the show. I mean, you know, famously Clive Thomas, you know, infuriated the whole of Brazil by, by disallowing Zico's goal because he headed it in four tenths of a second too late. And he said that, you know, to have blown my whistle after the final whistle would have been wrong, to do so before he took the corner would have been. So I had to let it play. He was adamant that he'd done, you know, he'd done, he'd done nothing wrong. So, no, English, I mean, I've done a whole chapter on referees in the 70s, which I really enjoyed writing. And, I, you know, I visited Gordon Hill because he was, not only was he a head teacher, he was also a fine artist. Um, and uh, I, what is one of his um, pictures features in the book, actually, um, which uh, is his, his impression of a Manchester derby, which is I quite I quite like. His 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 um, his ex partner, you know, sent me a, a copy of it. Sadly, Gordon Hill passed away quite recently. Yeah. Um, so this this dinner party. Sorry, we've got uh, yeah. So no, that's what I wanted. I, so we've got the ref, we've got the player. We need a pundit and a manager. Right. I think I would go for. I mean, you, you couldn't not have the have the the chance to invite Clough to dinner and pass on the opportunity. I think he'd have talked the other guests to, to death with his with his views on politics and on football and and how evil Leeds United and Alf Ramsey were. <laughs> but I think he would have been he would have been fa- you know fantastic company. And pundit wise, I'm going to select one of the guys from the very first panel. Um, um, from 1970 World Cup, Malcolm Allison. So he was Manchester City coach and, you know, he was later manager um, as well. And um, the, the, the bigger that big Mal got with this, this public persona, unfortunately, the, the, the worse his managing and coaching abilities seemed to become because he kind of coached a, a, a number or managed a number of clubs through the 70s with, 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 with less and less success. And yet he was still this this amazing persona. And I remember when I spoke to Brian Moore, who kind of chaired that first panel, he said, you know, he, the, the waft of, of uh, exotic aftershave off Big Mal, the cigar smoke and the, the smell of spirits. He goes, it's, it's like a pure early 70s man smell. So <laughs> we have, have, have to have Big Mal there as well, definitely. And so, Mal so- features, features in my book because he was very keen for Crystal Palace to promote from within. Kenny Sampson came through under him. Yeah, he did. Yeah. He did. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think, you know, under under him, um, Palace went down from Division 1 to Division 3. And I think it was Jim Cannon said no one else could, you know, do that and yet still be regarded as a hero other than Malcolm Allison. Um, because he kind of rebranded Palace as well with their kits and, uh, you know, the, 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 he made them a, a little bit more a little bit more glamorous in his in his inimitable style. Yeah. Yeah, the, the kits feature as well in this book and we haven't got time to go into the clans and Terry O'Neill and the Admiral England kit and all the Mavericks who are... I chatted to Rob Steen who told me all about the Mavericks and yeah. you can't write about the 70s without... Well, who's your? Well, we know who your favourite is. Who's your second favourite? I'll go Rodney Marsh. Um, Still with us? He's about eighty, Rodney Marsh. 
Yeah, that's right. That's right. I, actually, he's the only footballer from the from the era that I interviewed on Zoom. We had to teach each other to uh, record the, the Zoom. I didn't know what I was doing, and nor did he. So we had to work our way around it. So that that took a good ten minutes to sort. You know, Rodney Marsh is interesting because he he kind of encapsulates the the, the kind of baby boom era or baby boom football yeah. of that era so you know he as i think rob steen says in the mavericks you know they these guys they wore they wore their non-conformity as a, as a badge of honor and you know rodney marsh famously went to manchester city and he in 72 he was supposed to be the final piece in their title winning jigsaw signed by malcolm allison but what he did is he disrupted their style. You know, he got there and he wasn't fully fit. And although he played better next season, City had done well with Wynne Davis and Francis Lee up front. And Marsh kind of famously disrupted the uh, the rhythm. But uh, and and so you know he 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 himself said said told me that he regards himself as at fault for why City didn't win the title that season. But you know for him football was a show and he was a showman. And it was about the spectacle rather than winning things. And there were a number of players like Frank Worthington, Peter Osgood, Alan Hudson, you know, who feature in Rob Steen's book, who, who who really did think that way. They are they are a remarkable collection of footballers with often, you know, as I explore in the books, quite tangled um, lives off the pitch. You know, these guys are are certainly not, um, they don't have straightforward lives. But that's probably what makes them remarkable footballers because they're willing to take the same kind of chances on the field as they are off it. Um, and I think they 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 have very they they tell their own compelling stories. I think. Yeah, Rob and I were trying to think of a modern day maverick. The best we could come up is Jack Grealish, um, but we really couldn't. Or Cantona push, but we couldn't really think of one because no, I I Nicholas used Aaron, Bentner. <laughs> Nicholas Bentner, who actually lived at the end of my road. Did he? He used Did to be he? my. I think someone I know used to see him jogging in his little hat. But I think the thing is, we did we did look at whether to update Rebels for the Cause, which which looks at you know a few of Arsenal's kind of larger than life characters like Charlie George and whatever else. And we did talk about, oh, should we do on a chapter on Bentner? But uh, can modern day footballers earning the money they earn be described as mavericks or just kind of silly boys? I think there's a difference, isn't there? Is Bioakin Fenwa a maverick? Because he's at Wickham now. He was at Wimbledon, large yeah. life personality. But no, he's a normal bloke. I think he's a father of five kids. You can't really be a maverick if you're a family man. No, no. I mean, Jack Grealish, he plays football with a twinkle, doesn't he? Everyone, yeah. everyone, like, everyone likes Jack well, Grealish. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Is he, I don't know if he's a maverick, though. Because, you know, the, the mavericks, the way they lived their lives was boozy. You know, many of them boozy, fast, living off the pitch. I'm not. Sure. I don't think as a fo- as a footballer, if you're going to succeed in the modern game, you can be anything like that. So, I'm not sure modern footballers can be mavericks. No. One thing that I did note, and you front load the book with the superlatives. Superlatives are comments from people whose uh, kudos means that you want to read the book. David Winner, Tim Rich, Amy Lawrence, Paddy Barkley, Henry Winter, Guillaume Balaguer. Is, yeah. is there no A-list writer you haven't approached for a quote? That's a hell of a, a recommendation. We've had Paddy and David and Tim, the great Tim Rich, who's working on yeah. David Pleat's book at the moment, as you may know. Uh, we've had yeah. them in the library. You get your football library card, John Sperling, and you can have either a writer or a player or a manager, who's it going to be, on your library card. Paul Davis. The undersung Paul Davis. Features in Rocky's book. Uh, 
memoir. Well, Paul Davis started out at Arsenal. Uh, it kind of he emerged. It, he emerged in the era after Liam Brady had left. Now, no one could replace Liam Brady, who was, you, you know, the icon of Arsenal in the seventies. And Paul Davis initially struggled um, a great deal, but and it took him years really to become the player that everyone knew that he he could become. And under under George Graham, you know, he became much more much more disciplined and he flourished playing alongside David Rowcastle and and Michael Thomas and it was you know he, he almost looked like he wasn't built really for, for top flight football he's very very slender but his skill level and the, the way in which he created time on the ball was was amazing I mean in when we won the cup winners cup in 94 was Paul Davis as George Graham said you know Paul Davis is is my is my, my match winner he could float a ball and put it on a sixpence for you know Adams and bold as they as they as they marauded forward so for me Paul Davis is my all-time favorite Arsenal footballer he is so he turned 60 years old last December. He's more or less a one-club man who played for Arsenal yeah. for 15 years. Couldn't really get in the England team proper, but he played for under-21s. Um, it, was, it, it was weird because I, I interviewed Paul Davis for my 80s book. I mean, he's the, the only footballer I met I was starstruck to meet. I, you know, even with, even with George Best, I think I was so... I was quite keyed up to meet George Best. So I was quite tense. So I interviewed lots of... But Paul Davis, I really struggled to get my questions out and he's quite shy as well <laughs> it was it was a bit of a stumbling interview it was like uh, 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 a lot of that but i was i never got to tell him i was I, it was it was because i was quite starstruck he must have thought he was this idiot interviewing me who can, can't get his words out but it was it was because of that i don't know who i would get starstruck by because i i watched the other team in north london in the goran bunjevcevic years oh yeah, is, yeah which yeah. was when yes definitely st totteringham's day took place every year but I met Troy Deeney and uh, I wasn't so nervous with him um, Lloyd Doyley wasn't nervous with Lloydie um, they're just they're guys they're just because guys, I because yeah. I grew up watching Spurs I, I didn't really have an affinity towards particular players I guess Paul Gascoigne I'd try and just remind myself that he's a bloke from Newcastle rather than Paul Gascoigne comma footballer but it is strange yeah. and you've met I mean, you've met everyone. Many of them have passed away. Jackie Charlton, Norman Hunter, Ray Clements, who yeah. comes off really well in everyone's recollections of Big Ray. Yeah, Big Clem. I love, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Ray, I read Ray from my 80s book. You know, he starts off about the, the riot in, in Belgium during the 80, 80 yes. European Championships. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I have met many, many players. I, I don't, I'm not really starstruck. I don't get starstruck, really. Because uh, you say they're... They're guys and they're blokes, and I've never had a problem in any interviews that I've done with footballers. I think it's because I'm, to be honest, I'm, I'm a bit of a nobody. I'm not. A, I'm not a, a full-time football writer. I'm a teacher, and a that's that's my day job. And and they they initially asked me who do you work for, and mm. when I say I don't actually work for anyone, I think they relax a bit, and I try to go a little bit um, off off piste with the questions. So I asked, I made sure when I spoke to George Best, I asked him stuff. But I don't think he'd ever been asked before. And I've tried to do that with others. And I think they, they, they enjoy it a bit more then and they get a bit more into it because they probably get bored, get bored being asked the same questions, don't you they? You are the Fabrizio Romano of pre-Sky Sports football. Fabrizio as well doesn't work for anyone <laughs> in particular. Works 18-hour days in order to bring transfer news to whoever pays him to bring it. 
And the, I'd love to talk about the freelance life, but I need to let you go because Arsenal are playing. And That's all right. I, 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 if you want to ask me anything else, go for it. I don't Arsenal mind. haven't had a shot on target yet, um, but I've had most of the ball. The book is Get It On, How the 70s Rocked Football. It's out on Biteback. There are other books about the 70s, but none of them are by John Sperling. You promise drama, innovation, opportunity, controversy, tragedy, melodrama, and my favourite, slapstick. Can you give me an example of some 70s slapstick to finish with? Yeah, well, there's there's, there's a few bits. I mean, I think... (laughs) I think most famously in the seventies there were there were several f- footballers like Malcolm McDonald um, and Bobby Moore and Edmund Hughes uh, who appeared on Superstars, which was a a, a, um, a a prime time TV show where sportsmen from different disciplines would would compete in in various sports. Bring it back. Very, well, that's the problem. Nowadays, players wouldn't get insured Insurance, for it. Their, their clubs, yeah. their clubs wouldn't let them go. And, you know, famously, Kevin Keegan was on it and came off his bike and scraped all the skin off his back. I mean, you know, he's the, he was the, the top English player of, his, of the time. But slapstick-wise, Stan Bowles, um, the uh, the QPR player, um, went on there, a, a, a '70s maverick, and uh, he's he's infamous, if you like, for getting the lowest ever points total on superstars. And two two moments stand out in the shooting competition. Um, he he shot a hole in in the table, much to much to the alarm of uh, the competitors who are bemused and then and then laugh about it and, and himself. But famously, um, he he managed in the in the canoeing. To to literally torpedo uh, Malcolm McDonald, um, who was playing for Newcastle at the time. Now, the two never got on, um, and they got on even less after Stan Bowles veered off off lane, crashed into McDonald, and and capsized the pair of them. Um, And that only made their rivalry and kind of the tension between them even more uh, intense. So, you know, that is the kind of of atmosphere that. some of you know you get in in some elements of football in in the seventies, and I think it's I think it's probably that is at the root of its appeal. I mean, I think as I show in the book, it wasn't it wasn't all fun by any means. I don't think it was necessarily a golden era, as some say, but I think that because there wasn't the money in the game, and that perhaps because clubs were more rooted in the community um, than perhaps they are now, that it, it was possible to have a little bit more fun and perhaps it was enjoy more enjoyable. I don't think football was as kind of, you know, overblown perhaps as it as it can be today. I right, thank you very much. And Stan Bowles' autobiography, which he talks about superstars, is in the football oh. library. Um I was gonna ask what aspects of seventies football are still with us, but I'll change the question slightly. After the eighties book, could you write a book about football in the nineties? Or would you not be able to do it because it would be Less slapstick, less melodrama, less tragedy, less controversy. Uh, or do you just not want to write about Naeem? No, that's, that's a very interesting question because it's something I've thought about quite a lot. I mean, I think I said at the start of the interview that I'm working on the 80s book, but it's taken me a while to move my my headspace, if you like, from the 70s to a very different feel in the in the eighties, so I think you I think you certainly could write about the nineties because you've got so much. You've got the pre Premier League era. You've got you know the Saint you know, Greasy, yeah Saint Greasy. You've got the you've got you've got the you know the 
the Graham Taylor where you've got the Premier League. Yeah, you could. But again, the tone of it would be has to be very different from decade to decade. Because although football takes itself more seriously in the 90s and, as I say, gets more overblown perhaps, it doesn't mean that you can't eke out great stories. And I think that's what it is. It's great stories and taking different approaches to what people, you know, already already know about. And that's what I've tried to do in the 70s book, and I'm trying to do uh, in, in, in its sequel as well, with the 80s. For which we'll have to wait 18 months. In the meantime, there are a smattering of interviews, John Speller, that you're doing for Get It On, how the 70s rocked football. Where else can we hear your voice in the next few weeks? Yeah, so I am on the When Saturday Comes um, podcast. Perfect. Uh, coming up, uh, I'm, doing, I'm recording that uh, next week. But I know there's quite a few coming up, and I will tweet it to death, so uh, no no fears about that. Just remind us of your Twitter account. At John Sperling one And that's Sperling with a U. Like the duo yeah. Bell and Sperling, who did a song called Golden Balls, Mr Beckham to You. Any relation it, at all? No, no. And neither to John Sperling with an H, who was a, an answer on Pointless um, a couple of weeks ago. He was a horror writer. That's not me either. No, although uh, you have written this book, Death and Glory, which I must read all about the horrors of the World Cup. Um, what number book is Get It On? How many is it now? Uh, yeah. It is, well, look at my shelf. One, two, three, four, five, six. Number seven. Number seven. The Bukayo Saka of books. Indeed. But it's been seven years since I've written a book, so I am particularly excited about this. So, I, again, I cannot wait to get my my author copies through. Of course, the first one will be just sent to Barry Davis and uh, and then Paul Trevelyan, yeah. post-haste, post because uh, they, you know, I do think they, they, they make, they contribute to the, what I hope is the unique flavour of the book. God, I've, I've just seen all these names that you've dropped. I'm going to have to spend all evening cleaning this up. No, well, there's only one thing to do left, and that is to bang a gong and get it on. John Sperling, thank get you very on. much. Get it on.